You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Good morning, Mercy's Door. I'm Adam, one of the teaching pastors here at the church. We're going to be continuing through the Gospel account of John. We're in chapter 1. Verse 35 this morning, going to be going down on through verse 51, if you want to find your way there. While you do, I um, just want to tell you a quick story. Um, so going back, I think, I guess it was 12 years now, uh, where I'm up in Chicago uh, at a church called the Source Church. It's the church that sent Michael and I out uh, six years ago to plant Mercy's Door. Mercy's Door was planted five years ago now, this month. It's incredible. Um, and we're up at that church, up, 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 and, and Michael and I are fast friends. Pastor Michael and I are kind of serving alongside one another doing that. Um, it's, it's pretty incredible. But we're both young dads, new husbands, and uh, working dads. And working dads who are new husbands are overwhelmed and busy men. And so uh, we struggled to uh, find a way to do friendship. So uh, we came up with the radical idea of what if we just did the things that we are already doing together? And uh, that is what we now call gospel community at Mercy's Door. And uh, up in Chicago, uh, what it looked like is um, carpooling to work or uh, grocery shopping together or uh, taking our little boys on play dates to the park together um, or uh, sharing meals together or uh, celebrating our kiddos' birthday parties together. Um, and this is the foundation of friendship. Not that we carved out additional time on the calendar for friends, but that in all of the things that we were already doing, that we simply did them together. And over time, this built the beautiful friendship that would result in other things. Well, I distinctly remember the day that Michael and I started to dream about planting a church together. We were at a park uh, with our wives, and our kids were eating mulch, and we're standing by the swing set, and we're just chatting and dreaming out loud and saying, you know, we, we both had a background with the church, but at the Source Church up in Chicago, we had experienced something unique. We had, this is the first time that we had ever been at a church uh, that worked left to right through the entire counsel of God and found the gospel centrality in that and taught us what it looks like to really fix our eyes on the riches and the majesty of Christ Jesus and to apply it over the everyday stuff of life. And that's the DNA of what Mercy's Door would become. And as we are kind of navigating that and really being transformed by that, we just start dreaming out loud. What, like, everyone needs this. Everyone needs this. Everywhere needs this. And just starting to dream about what it would look like to take what we were receiving to other places. And so back then, I, I, I do admit the name of Scuda never came up. And we dreamed about, uh, I, I come from Massachusetts originally, so we were like, hey, you know, what would it look like if we were like plant a church out in New England? It's like one of the least churched areas of the country at this point. And Michael had loved a time that he had spent in uh, Lexington, Kentucky. And he's like, oh, what if we went to Lexington, you know? Or uh, I went to grad school down in Texas. What if we were to go to Texas and they, they could really use a, a church there? And at no point did Mascuda come up, I'll confess, but uh, at one point, uh, his wife Rachel and my wife Sarah like, you know, I really think we need to be going to Ghana, West Africa, right? 
And I just want to firstly say, like, how much the Lord loves Mascuda and Scott Air Force Base that he said no to Ghana, West Africa, and said yes to Mascuda, Illinois, right? So the story goes uh, that this was six years before Mercy's Door was ever planted. We're just dreaming about planting a church one day and just doing life together day by day. And one day he comes back here. Michael graduated high school here. He was a military brat. But he was here when he graduated high school and then went to undergrad at McKendry in Lebanon. So he was here visiting family where his mom and dad had sunk roots. And you guys have probably heard the story if you've been here long enough. He's getting his hair cut and he has a moment with the Lord where it just becomes clear to him that he's supposed to plant a church in Mascuda, Illinois, back in his stomping ground. So he comes back home, home up in Chicago, and he's in my living room and the kids are playing. He says, Adam, I gotta tell you, the Lord wants me to plant a church in Mascuda. And in the spirit, my instinct, my response was, when do we leave? And I'd never heard of Mascuda. And I'd never been to Mascuda. And I had no sense at the time that coming to Mascuda meant that it meant planting a church where 30% of your context is old town. People have been here for generations, old farming community. 30% of the city is, is new town, people moving into the new development outside this, the city. And that 30% is this transient military context of people being brought in. I didn't even know we were, that Mascuda was near a military base when I said, hey, when do we go? However, what happened was, is over time, as we fixed our eyes increasingly on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we had just gotten to a point where our lives were, were set up in such a way that we just wanted to say yes when we saw the Lord moving. And so we ended up here. And that was costly. It was costly not just to us, but it was costly to the Source Church. You know, uh, Michael, he, I don't know if you guys know this, but before he was the lead pastor of Mercy Store, Michael was, uh, he worked in the counterterrorism division of the Department of Defense with some new fangled thing that they set up after 9-11, uh, working for Argonne National Laboratory. And I say that to say that you don't walk away from that career and then walk back into it a few years later if things don't work out in the ministry, right? Giving that up is to give that up really for good. And I was managing University of Chicago Medical Centers and had just been given an opportunity to step into a directorship at Rush University Medical Center and walked away from that in order to come down here to be a part of this. It was costly, it was scary, it was giving up everything that was familiar, giving up careers, giving up friendships, giving up church, uh, the church that we were familiar with, all of that, and we're down here. But it wasn't just costly to us, it was also costly to the Source Church, who gave up Michael was the executive pastor. I was one of their deacons at the time, and they gave up really their two most engaged members in the ministry to go and be a part of a new gospel work 400 miles away. And in that, we end up here, and no one, and I mean no one in my family who doesn't know Christ, had any sense for what we were doing or why we were doing it. I got very little people saying, this, yeah, this makes sense. Everyone saying, what are you guys doing? What are you guys doing? Of course, you guys know what we're doing because you're all a part of it, right? Well, now, of course, Mercy's Door, if you guys have been here over the last few weeks, but at Gospel Community, you got the announcement that the Lord's moving again, right? And he's asking Mercy's Door to continue a legacy that he started well before Mercy's Door was ever planted. And it's kind of our turn, right, to see the Lord and to say, we just want to kind of go and follow him where he's moving. 
Well, the lead pastor of the Source Church that sent us out from up there to plant Mercy's Door heard the call of the Lord to go to Texas, and so he's down there, and he says, you know, I need a brother. And the thing is, the biblical model for church planting and for really all ministry is that we go out two by two. It's what we see in the, in the gospel accounts and in Acts, is that they go out two by two. And so at no point in this have I had to turn to my right and not find a brother. I've always been able to find Michael. He's always been able to find me. And now we have five elders at Mercy's Door, which is incredible. And down in Texas, there was only one. And so when that call came in and Michael came to me and he said in my living room, once again, I think the Lord wants me to go to Texas. Again, just going back six years ago in the spirit, just saying, when do you go? When do you go? Because there's something about following Jesus, and I want us to see it, and we're going to see it as he calls the first disciples here. Jesus calls the first disciples here in our passage this morning, where ultimately we're not just here to see Jesus, to learn about Jesus, to talk about Jesus, to enjoy Jesus for ourselves, but we're here to follow Jesus. And when he starts to move and go places, we follow him when he says, follow me. Well, I want us to see something of this story in these first disciples, the very first disciples. I want to read the passage over you, and then we're going to pray. It goes like this, John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, again, John the baptizer was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Will you pray with me? Father God, as we spend this time this morning getting our eyes on, these, on the first calling of the disciples, Lord, the very beginning of your public ministry as you come to do what you came to do, Lord, I pray that we would be uh, so, inca- so captivated by who you are, by what you're about, by your mission 
in this world, Lord, that all other things, whatever else we've got going, Lord, would just be measured and be made small. I pray that like the first disciples, Lord, that at your invitation to come and see, that we would receive your invitation, that we would excitedly leave whatever else we have going behind in order to follow you and whatever it is that you've got going. Lord, we count all things as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing you. And we ask that this morning that you would make that statement, whatever part of it's a lie, that you would make it true by your spirit in us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's go verse by verse. So John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. So last week, if you were here, Pastor Michael preached it over you guys, uh, that this is not the first time John has said this sentence. Yesterday, John said this sentence. You know, verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and John the baptizer said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so you've got this image of John the Baptist doing his thing. He's got a following. He's got disciples. John has got a following of people that are all around him. And he's baptizing water people in the Jordan River. This baptism of water, he's calling them to confess and to repent as he prepares the way for the one who is greater than he to come. And so his whole ministry, John's whole ministry, which went on for years before Jesus ever shows up on the scene, John has got this ministry of preparation where everyone who's with him, he's saying, I'm gathering you in order that I might prepare you for one who comes after me, one who is greater. And so just preaching about Jesus, about the Messiah who is to come. And then he comes yesterday, not today, yesterday he comes, and John declares, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the story does not go on from there. And then many followed him. No one followed him. Yesterday he made this declaration and nobody left John to go follow Jesus. That didn't happen. But here again, day number two, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. I don't know if any of you guys are like fans of The Office. And when I read this, I thought of the episode of like called Garden Party, where uh, Dwight is pranked by Jim to believe that as people enter a party that he's supposed to loudly declare that they are on the scene. And he says, Jim, helper! You know, as they walk, oh, I forgot my keys. And he walks back and walks past again. He says it again, Jim, helper! Just kind of declaring it again and again. I did just compare John the Baptist to Dwight. But hear me on it, right? Like, there's something beautiful in it, right? Like, because we tend to think that John had this whole ministry that he built where it was all culminating on the moment where in one, like, one loud declaration, he would say, behold, here's the one, and now I'm out. I'm done. But that wasn't the case for John the Baptist, was it? The moment that his whole ministry had been pointing to comes and goes, and not one follows Jesus. But the next day, in his faithfulness, John the Baptist once again declares, this is the one. Behold the Lamb of God. And on this day, too, follow Jesus. And we know, and we're going to read the whole gospel and teach the whole gospel of John, and so you'll see that John's ministry isn't done now that two have followed Jesus either. John is going to continue in his ministry until he's beheaded. So... (laughs) There's, there's something that I want us to pick up on here, though, which is 
essentially this, that John is, it's not, this passage isn't about us, but we ought to glean from it, that we aren't like in the business of just trying to get people to like at one point acknowledge or behold the Lamb of God. Like that we are each called into a ministry similar to John's, where we point to him over and over and over again saying, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. This is the ministry of John the Baptizer, that he would over and again tell everybody, Behold the Lamb of God. Well, here there are two disciples that are with him, and it's important that we see that these are John's disciples. John has built a following. John has been doing hard ministry where he's been mocked and ridiculed for it in preparation for the, for the Messiah to come, and he's built a following. And he's got two disciples of his own that are with him that hear him declare, Behold the Lamb of God, and they leave him to follow Jesus. These two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And there's an application in this for us this morning. Because there's a part of us, there's at, least, at least I confess to you that there's a part of me that wants very much to gather all of you guys into a room like this and declare, Behold Jesus see Jesus, enjoy Jesus, rest in the gospel, all of that. But when you get eyes on him and he starts to move and you want to follow him, I want to grab you by the legs. I want to grab you by the ankles. But Well, don't, don't go with him. Stay here. I certainly want to do that with my brother Michael. Twelve years we've been doing ministry together. I don't want him to actually go follow Jesus somewhere where Jesus isn't calling me to go. And we're in a military context, so every three years I have to let Uncle Sam, the Lord through Uncle Sam, take you guys away. Well, I just want you guys to stay right here. I don't want him to take you to Korea, to Japan, to Belgium. I don't want him to take you to other states around the country. I want you to stay right here, but you don't see John grabbing the two disciples by the ankles, be like, well, hold on. We're doing the water baptism thing. You're my disciples. You stay right here in the river with me. Our job is to stay here and tell other people to behold the Lamb of God. You don't see him do that, do you? No, he gladly turns his two disciples over to walk directly with Jesus by his leading. And that's supposed to be the whole idea, and we're going to see a lot more of that from John the Baptist in chapter 3, so I'll hold on to that. But these two disciples who were with John heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And we ought to hear this word, followed Jesus, in the lamest sense of the word follow. It literally just means they followed him. He was walking, and they tagged behind him, okay? Um, and the other gospel accounts will give us the more full story of the moment where Jesus actually effectually calls them to become his disciples. This is not that moment. This is the moment where John is declaring, hey, that's the guy, and they, with their feet, start to tag along and try to feel him out, okay? But Jesus is going to call them to be his disciples in very intimate and specific ways later. So these two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned, verse 38, and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? This is just funny, so you can just picture it with me, right? Like, they followed him, but they didn't say anything, apparently. So they're like, kind of like just tagging along behind him. So that he turns around, he sees that they're following him, and he says to them, 
what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And so you got to imagine that if you are a disciple of John the baptizer, if you're there with, if you're his disciple, meaning you've been sitting under his teaching, then you're seeking something, right? Like you don't end up in the woods with John the baptizer by chance. You're seeking something, right? And you're hanging out with him sitting under his teaching because you're seeking something. And so when John says, this is the one of whom I said, the people who would know what he's talking about are the people who have been there when he was saying it. And so there was a culmination of ministry happening that John could just point and say, that's the one, and that these guys would know what he was talking about and go and follow him, right? They were seeking something. They were seeking, and that's going to become clear in a minute. But they didn't say to him what they were seeking, did they? They answered him, where are you staying? Teacher, where are you staying? You can almost imagine, like, they're thinking, not here, not now. This is weird. I don't know you, but that guy said something. Where are you staying? Can we come at an appointed time to wherever you're staying, maybe in private, have a conversation about what we're seeking? But right now, we're just where are you staying? And Jesus said to them, come, and you will see. And this is, you can almost imagine like they weren't expecting him to like invite them to where he was staying right then and there, right? Like they were just trying to ascertain a place where they could go to follow up on who this guy is. And Jesus says, right now, come on, and you will see. He invites them, and so they follow him. Come, and you will see. And so they came, and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, which four o'clock. So they get there, it's late in the afternoon, and he invites them to stay with him. And so they do, they stay with him in the place where he was staying. They receive this invitation to come, and so they come, and they stay with him. In verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ and he brought him to Jesus. And so we're going to be tempted here. Well, let's at least like break down the account. So Andrew is one of the two disciples that was with John. They're now following Jesus. They get to the place where he's staying, and Andrew's like, I'll be right back. I got to go get my brother. And he leaves and goes and gets Simon, and he brings Simon to Jesus. And so a lot of people will tell you that Andrew is like the first missionary, He's the first one who sees the Messiah, and then he goes and he gets somebody else. And I would say, Andrew's not the first missionary. And I tell you that, and you're like, well, yeah, because it's John the Baptist, right? He's the first real missionary. No, not him either. Listen to what they say. It's silliness, but they don't know yet. He says, uh, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He went and found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. See, they were completely unaware in this moment that they hadn't found anyone, that he had found them, right? Jesus had found them. This is the story of Jesus selecting his disciples, Jesus going and bringing dead people to life, right? This is, this is a story about Jesus's missional ministry. Jesus has broken in 
to time and space, taken on flesh, and is walking among the peoples of the earth and calling his disciples. The first missionary is Jesus. It's Jesus. And the first response to the great missionary is to go and do likewise and find others. And so Andrew goes, I got to get my brother. And he says to him what he didn't say to Jesus when Jesus asked him, what are you seeking? He said, we have found the Messiah. And see, that was the right answer. That when, when Jesus said, what are you seeking? Clearly the answer is the Messiah. Instead, they said to Jesus, where are you staying? He says to Simon, his brother, the Messiah. We found the Messiah, which means Christ or anointed one. And he brings Simon Peter to Jesus. And you'll notice in verse 40 that they call Andrew in this right mark, or uh, John calls Andrew Simon Peter's brother, even though Simon Peter's not even in the story yet. Because at the point that this was written, everyone knows who Simon Peter is. And so Andrew, his title is Simon Peter's brother. But Andrew was the one who went and got Simon Peter, wasn't he? But Simon Peter was the much greater known disciple. But Andrew will always be remembered as the one who went and got his brother. And so we bring Simon Peter to Jesus. And obviously that's a model for us. And Jesus looks at Peter, at Simon, and he says, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas which means Peter, and Peter means rock. Now I want you to imagine that you come to Mercy's door, and you come in the entryway, and I shake your hand, and you say, hi, I'm David, and I say, yes, you are David. You shall be called Rocket, okay? You'd be like, what kind of a cult have I just walked into, right? And Jesus, by meeting Simon and saying, you are Simon, you shall be called Rock, is declaring from the very onset of his ministry, I am the one with the power to rename. I am the one with the ability to completely change your identity. And that's an invitation for Peter to flee, isn't it? And what's funny is when he calls Peter the Rock, when he calls Simon the rock and renames him that, it is the least fitting name I've ever seen given to somebody. Peter is going to be, in every way, the opposite of the rock. And you'll notice, and I want you guys to write this down, that Jesus gives Peter his new name well before Peter has done anything. They've just met. Peter has not done, had any ministry success, and he has not had any ministry failure. He, they have just met, and he's been given a new name by Jesus. Jesus says, you shall be called the rock. And then Peter's going to go on to be anything but the rock. He is going to be the most emotional of the disciples. He is going to waver all over the place. He's going to boldly say, I'm going to do this, and then he's going to do the opposite. He's going to fail hard. He's going to be, the, Peter's the disciple who's going to, by faith, walk on water, and then by doubt, sink and need to be saved by Jesus. He's anything but firm and steady. It was going to be Peter who denied Jesus to his face three times in his moment of greatest need. It was Peter who, during the, 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 the Last Supper, declares to Jesus, I will never betray you. I will follow you even unto death, no matter what. I'm with you, man. And then Jesus says, no, you won't, Peter. Three times before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me. And then looking upon him as three times, he says, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Peter was not the rock, not in the way that we might take that word to mean. 
But in Matthew, when Jesus is asking the disciples, who are people saying that I am? And who do you say that I am? Peter answers, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you're the anointed one. And Jesus, celebrating over Peter, says that it's God who has given you this answer and that you shall be the rock and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This name that was given to Peter before that, before that moment in Matthew, before anything happens, was a foreshadowing that Jesus was saying to Peter about what he intended to do with his life, what Jesus intended to do with his life. And so as a sub-point of this sermon, I want us to hear this morning that it's important that when we think about our identity, our core identity, that we think in terms of the name that Jesus has given us, and not the names that we want to give ourselves. I, I, raise your hand if you're like a Myers-Briggs or Enneagram type person. Like, if I asked you, like, what's your personality type, you could answer that. You could, you know, you know, just, I'm alone. Um, it's really, like, it was really popular, like, five years ago. I felt like everyone wanted to know, like, what their personality type was. You're like, hi, my name is Adam, but I shall be called an ENTP, right? And, it, like, this was a way for me to describe to other people kind of the core aspects of my identity. Am I introverted? Am I extroverted? Am I intuitive? Am I sensory? I forget the rest of them. Am I a thinker? Am I a feeler? Stuff like that. And like somehow if I can tell you these combination of letters, then you're going to really understand who I am. And if you tell me your combination of letters, we're going to understand like whether or not we're compatible. It's like, it's like the, I don't know what it is. It's, it's very new agey stuff, right? But we do it because we really like to, like, self-identify. We want to define ourselves. We want to give names and explanations to who we are and what we're made up of. And maybe if you're not like that, like, in the psychology realm, you're still doing it, like, with, like, the things you're good at or the things you're not good at. Like, I'm Adam the dad. I'm Adam the husband. I'm Adam the pastor. I'm Adam the healthcare leader. I'm Adam the guy who loves music or reading or writing or whatever or just... I'm, or, or maybe I define myself in the negative, you know, where I, I'm Adam and these are, I'm Adam the failure. You know, I'm Adam the, you know, the one who blew it, right? And the thing is, is that when, when, you, when you put your identity on any of these things that are built on kind of these, these lesser self-definitions, then as soon as you fail to live up to that thing, then your identity is now in crisis, Right? So if I'm Adam the musician and I lose my right hand in a car accident, now my identity is in crisis, right? And so it's so important, I think, that when we think about Jesus giving a name to Peter and Jesus in giving all, all of us names as our first and primary and highest identity being Christian, I'm Adam the Christian, Adam the blood-bought, Adam the covered one, that this is the unshakable name of Adam that was given to him by Christ and that is carried out in Christ so that I can't fail my way out of this identity. I can't screw that one up because he gave it to me beforehand. And then he defined what it meant. And then he predestined the good works that I was going to walk out in this life. And he decided to work in and integrate all of my sin, brokenness, and failure to still bring about his good purposes in that identity. It's an entirely different way to interact with who you are. And this was going to be huge in the life of Peter, but again, we're going to read the whole gospel, so we're going to get to Peter. But today, just now, before he's done a thing, he's been given a new name 
that Christ intends to see through. And the next day, verse 43, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so right away in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see a pattern developing. Jesus calls, or Andrew follows, follows Jesus, then Andrew goes and gets his brother. Jesus calls Philip, Philip runs and gets Nathaniel. And he says to Nathaniel this time, remember that uh, Andrew said to his brother, we found the Messiah. Now Philip is saying to Nathaniel, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so there's like this real, like heightening view of the disciples of who exactly this is. Who is this one that we are communing with? And this view of who he is is what's driving them to go and grab a friend, to go and tell somebody, to go and bring along somebody, to go invite somebody else in. And they did this after knowing him for like a day. And don't hear this as conviction, but some of you guys have known the Lord for 20 years. For 10 years, you've seen the face of Jesus. And if it's true that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that he is the King of Israel, that he is, uh, that, that he is the one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, that he is the Messiah, which means Christ, the anointed one. If we see him and spend time with him and talk to him and discover with, for our own selves that this is who he is, the natural impulse of the original disciples was to go and tell a friend. And so go and tell a friend would just be the big takeaway here. Go, like, this is big news, and everyone needs to hear it. So go and tell a friend. Go and move to Texas. And I mean that. Like, I don't mean that tongue-in-cheek. It's very possible that one of you in here, someone in here, is called to go be a part of a new work in Georgetown, Texas, because your church is sending out the lead pastor to go and be a part of a new church plant there. And I certainly wouldn't have said 12 years ago that I was the one who was going to go to Mascuda. And so maybe it's you. But go and tell a friend. Go and find them, whether it's the next town over, whether it's at work, whether it's in your, on your own block, or whether it's across the world. Go and tell that you have found the one and that he has found you. And Nathanael says to him in response, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And this is like the response I always get when I'm trying to tell people about Jesus, right? Doesn't sound like anything good can be found there. And Philip says to him, come and see. Come and see. He doesn't launch an apologetic. He doesn't start trying to convince him that he's good. He knows him, and he knows where he lives, and he knows what it's like to be with him. He's going to let Jesus make a defense for himself. He just says, come and see. Come taste and see and experience it for yourself. And so he does. Nathaniel comes along, and Jesus saw him coming toward him, and he says of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel says to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. 
And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So we don't get the details about the fig tree, but we're in a figgy region, okay? And so Nathanael would have been under a fig tree at some point, right? And so saying, I saw you under the fig tree, you might think that Jesus is like pulling a card trick here. Like he was like, ah, Adam, truly you are an American. And uh, I saw you in the car, right? I was in the car on Tuesday. No. We need to tie the two sentences together. Jesus says of Nathaniel, I lost my way, hold on. Jesus says of Nathaniel, behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel, that hits him in a certain way. We don't get the details. And he says, how do you know me? Like he feels seen already by that statement. And Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Something happened under a fig tree that had to do with deceit. And Nathaniel did not succumb to deceit. And so Nathaniel had an opportunity to deceive at some point under a fig tree, and he didn't. And Jesus knows that, and he's bringing it up. And this was, must have been a big moment in Nathaniel's life, because he knows exactly what he's talking about and feels super seen. So this isn't some card trick. This is, this is Nathaniel saying, how do you know me? And Jesus always has to say, the fig tree. And Nathaniel's like, whoa. He's just shown that he has special insight and special knowledge about the times and places where he was not physically there. And that's all it takes for Nathaniel to just shake it in his knees and start declaring, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answers him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You're going to see greater things than this. And he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I would like to have more time to spend on this section, but what Jesus is clearly doing, and I would encourage you to write it down and go back and read Genesis 28, if that's not a familiar passage to you, um, but he is referencing back to Jacob's ladder, okay? And there's this story in Genesis where the sky is opened up, where heaven is opened up to Jacob, and he is, sees angels ascending and descending a ladder to heaven. And the place becomes a holy place that they call Bethel, and it becomes a place where the people of God would go to experience God or to know that they're in his presence. And in this story of Jacob's ladder, we should know about the character of Jacob, that he was a great deceiver, that Jacob was a man in whom there was much deceit. He tricked his own brother Esau out of his birthright. He tricked his own father. He himself is tricked by Laban when he's pursuing Rachel to be his wife. Jacob is a character who is an Israelite marked by deceit. And in, in, for Jacob, the deceiver, he was able to see angels ascending and descending Jacob's ladder. And there's this place called Bethel named after that, right? And so Jesus says to Nathanael, he calls him an Israelite, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He's just elevated him above Jacob, one of the patriarchs. And he has said to him, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Not on Bethel, not on, a, a, you guys who were with me during the Leviticus sermon series would know that 
God in the Old Testament tabernacles with the people, that there are designated places, designated times, designated ways that you could access or commune with God, that with a mediator, with all of the right different things, with the tent set up right, that you could commune with God. And Bethel was one of these places where the people would go to feel like they had closeness to heaven, access to heaven. Jesus is saying, the angels will descend and descend upon me. That my very life, me being here, is God tabernacling among the people. That you, unlike Jacob, won't have to go to Bethel. You are standing in the presence of heaven right here and right now. That is a heck of a way to crack open your public ministry. And I want to read over you guys all of the names that come up in this passage. It just struck me as I'm reading it. By John the Baptizer, he's called the Lamb of God. By the disciples, he is called Rabbi, which means teacher, Messiah, Christ, or anointed one, the one who Moses and the prophets wrote about, the son of Joseph from Nazareth, the son of God, the son of man, and the king of Israel. You don't have to like take notes, you just read the passage, you'll find them. These are all the names that come up in just these verse 35 to verse 51 for Jesus on his first couple of days with the disciples. These are the names that are spoken of Jesus. And the one that, the three that stood out to me as I was preparing this message were son of Joseph, from Nazareth, son of man, and son of God. That these seem like, how could they possibly coexist? How could these be three identities of Jesus? When we say that he's son of Joseph from Nazareth, this was like the topic of mockery. We're going to see that name again. We're going to see king of Israel again. We're going to see it when he's hanging on a cross. They're going to pin an inscription above the cross, and it's going to say, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. These names that were given to Jesus here at the onset of his ministry will show up again on a Roman cross. In Acts, when they're trying to stamp out the Christian movement, they start calling it in a derogatory fashion the Na that Nazarene sect. That Nazarene sect is what they call it. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth, who is the son of man, who is the son of God, Jesus doesn't shy away from any of these titles. He owns them for himself. Son of man and son of God. There's a doctrine that I want us to wrestle with this morning as I start to, as I start to close my thoughts here. That we spent several weeks in the introduction of John really getting our eyes on the deity of Christ, that he was there in the beginning with God, that he is himself God, right? And, and we get this really high view of him. When he starts to identify himself as the son of man, he's showing us something entirely different and beautiful about himself. When he becomes the son of man, when he enters into human flesh, born of a virgin, and lives a human life, he, make, he, say, he declares over himself that he is the firstborn of all creation, and firstborn is an inheritance term, and so it, it, the firstborn is the one to whom the inheritance is owed in a family, right? And so by calling him the son, himself the son of man and the firstborn of all creation, he's saying that everything that belongs to this world belongs to him, that it's his rightful inheritance. And so he who created everything, and then his creation departs from him, and then he enters into the story to become like them, 
and then purchases back that which was already his in order that those things would become his own inheritance. He, the things he already had a rightful claim to, he repurchases with his own blood. It's like Jesus is declaring, you're all mine, doubly so. I made you, you left me, and I bought you back. And each of these names would take a sermon by itself to preach, and so I won't. But I want you to know that Jesus is introducing himself to the disciples and to us as his disciples in a major way at the onsite of his ministry here, and he is going to give clarity to each of these names over the next several chapters as we see him walk this out with his disciples. But I just want you to know, they didn't need clarity on almost any of this before their response started to be correct. It was, with whatever grain of faith that I get this, all I know is I want to come and see, and I want to go grab others so that they can see too. And I just want to invite us this morning to, like the original disciples, to see that and to count Jesus as worthy, to leave everything else behind, to count everything as loss, to go and see for yourself, to go and spend the night with him and follow him wherever it is that he is going, and to go and grab others along the way in order that they might see for themselves this Jesus, Lamb of God, Messiah, Christ, the one they wrote about, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Son of Joseph, the King of Israel. He alone is worthy of our obedience and our life and all of the things that we're holding back from him, church. All of the things that we want to hold on to by the ankles and say, look, look, but don't go. I want to invite us this morning to open our hands and to encourage the people around us and to us ourselves move our feet and follow him. Will you pray with me to that end?